0: go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we worship You. We give You glory, Lord, in all things and in all ways. You are King. You are the only one worthy of our praise. What a Savior we have. Father, I pray for this morning, Lord, as we continue to move through the Sermon on the Mount, hearing the clear words of Your Son, Jesus Christ interpreting rightly the Old Testament law and applying it to the lives of His hearers and to our lives as well. Father, through Your Holy Spirit, will You enable the the preaching of Your Word that we might hear, we might understand, and we might be transformed by it. In Your name we pray. Amen. So, over the past uh, several messages, we've looked uh, together at a section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus explained His relationship to the law. Came not to, and this is all kind of going back where we've been, He came not to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And as such, the law of God is permanent. It is permanent. Not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And how we do and how we teach the commandments of God have eternal consequences. We're not to discard or relax even the least of these commandments, as Jesus calls them. And those who are faithful will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And as we saw last week, Jesus ended this section with some strong and surprising words. He said in verse 20, For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. By all earthly appearances, the scribes and the Pharisees were models of righteousness. They were models of righteousness. They sought to follow the laws as well as their own traditions meticulously, even to the extent of tithing their mint, their dill, and their cumin. But Jesus demands more. Jesus demands more. He's not seeking those who merely have an outward conformity to the letter of the law. He's seeking those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And those who enter the kingdom of heaven are those who are obedient, not just to the letter of the law, but obedient from the heart. Now, everything that will follow for the remainder of chapter 5, and frankly, for the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount flows from this statement, Jesus' statement in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus will give six examples from the law. He will properly interpret the law, looking not only at its letter, but at the underlying motives of our hearts. This morning we're going to focus on the subject of anger. Anger. We'll look at what the Lord, uh, in future messages, we're going to look at what the Lord says about lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and loving our enemies. And in every case, Jesus will give His own positive exposition of the law, while at the same time, He contrasts it with the false teaching Of the scribes and the Pharisees. If you haven't already, open your Bibles to Matthew 5, and I will be reading from verse 21 through 26. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, That everyone who is angry with his brother, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So each of Jesus' uh, six statements begin in the same way. Verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old you shall not murder whoever murders will be liable to judgment but i say to you so with a very few very few few tiny exceptions or variations that's the formula you have heard that it was said but i say to you okay verse 27 jesus says you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery but i say to you Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you. In order for us to understand what Jesus is doing in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, it's important for us to understand two considerations. The first will seem like too fine of a point, but I really do believe it's significant. So stay with me on this. It's the word to in verse 21. The word to. You have heard it was said to those of old. Now, most of our modern English translations, the ESV, the NASB, the New King James, the NIV, all say two or some derivative of that. It's actually the NASB that has a slight derivative of that. The King James, however, says, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, by them of old time. Linguistically, it's impossible to determine which is so, which is right. And commentators are certainly divided on this. And the only way to discern which is correct is to look at the context. Given the context, I believe the word by is more accurate. Why? Those who would say that it should read to them of old, okay, the word to, to them of old, would believe that Jesus is referring to the law of Moses that was given to the fathers. Personally, I don't believe the word to necessitates that interpretation, but that's further than I want to go. Those who understand the text as saying by would emphasize that it was being taught, it was what is being taught by the scribes and the Pharisees. Okay? The law of God as written, or by the scribes and the Pharisees. I believe that's what's going on here. Jesus is showing the true teaching of the law as opposed to the false representations of it made by the scribes and the Pharisees. He's not teaching against the law of God, which he promised not to do in verse 16. Right? Look back. He promised not to do that in verse 16. He doesn't say, you have read in the law of Moses, but I say to you. He doesn't say, it is written, which is the normal formula he would use, including the previous chapter. He says, he doesn't say, it is written, but I say to you. Very important that we understand that in each of these six teachings that will be coming up over the next six, eight months, um, Jesus is not teaching against the law as given in the Old Testament. Rather, he is correcting the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees and their understanding of the law, okay? Seems like a fine point, but it's important. Um, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones gives a great illustration of this in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm going to paraphrase it for us. Um, He compares the Jews in the time of Christ to those at the time of the Reformation. Okay? The Scriptures were not written in English. The people would come to church and have the Mass read to them in Latin. And after reading the text in Latin, the priest would expound upon the Scripture. People were totally reliant, totally reliant on the priest for their understanding of the Bible. The Reformation essentially put the Bible into the hands of the people where they could examine the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so, Acts 17.11. All right? The Jews were in a similar uh, situation. During the time of their 70-year captivity in Babylon, the Jews essentially lost the Hebrew language. When they returned, they spoke Aramaic, not Hebrew. And as a result, they were totally reliant in the same way the people of the Reformation were. They were totally reliant upon the scribes and the Pharisees to expound upon their interpretation of the Old Testament law which was written in Hebrew. So what the people understood about the law was not the law as given to Moses. Rather, it was the law that was represented to them by the scribes and the Pharisees. What was represented included their own ideas about interpretation, as well as the many traditions that they had added to the law. See the, see the similarities? Bottom line for our first consideration is that Jesus was not altering the terms of the law in any of his six statements, not even the slightest. He was correcting what they had heard from the scribes and the Pharisees and calling them back to a biblical understanding of the law. That's important for us to know first. Second consideration that I think is worthy of our attention in this formula that Jesus Jesus uses is that Jesus' repeated statement, but I say to you. Okay? But I say to you, Jesus spoke as one who had authority. Why? Because as the eternally existent Word of God made flesh, John 1.14, He is the only one who has that authority. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we read this, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Matthew seven twenty-eight and 29. We read the same thing in Mark 1, 21 to 22. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. The key is, as the one who fulfills the law of God... Verse 16, as the one who fulfills the law of God, Jesus' interpretation of the law is authoritative. In no way, and it's so important we understand this, okay? Before these next six messages, you've got to understand this. In no way is Jesus contradicting the law of God or giving a new kingdom ethic, which some would, would take from the Sermon on the Mount. He is not doing that. Rather, Jesus interprets the law clearly according to what it has always meant. Hear that? Interpreting the law according to what it has always meant. When John or Eric or myself stand here at the pulpit and exposit the the Scriptures, that's our goal, is to exposit and explain the text according to what it means when it was written. We apply it to us in the modern day. We apply it to our lives but we explain the true meaning. That's exactly what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. Crucially important for us to understand. For us to understand. Okay? Alright, so with those initial thoughts and plates, let's turn to the text. Verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Obviously, we receive that command from God in the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. Exodus 20.13. Period. Hard stop. You shall not murder. Hard to argue with that. It's a clear command from God. But the scribes and the Pharisees added something. Right? They added something. They added, And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Is that biblical? Sure it is. Sure it is. Numbers 35.30-31 speaks to the actual judgment for murder when it says, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. Again, Numbers 35, 30 to 31. The problem is that by putting those two things together, okay, the command and the consequence, by putting those two things together, what it does is it softens the command, you shall not murder. It makes it about the actual act and only about the actual act of murder. It makes it, um, it's not about the thoughts and the attitudes that lead to the action. If you commit murder, there'll be consequences. Okay, that's That's what the Pharisees have taught. If you you commit murder, there will be consequences. I'm glad there's consequences. But Jesus is asking for far, far more. Not only that, it relegates the judgment to the civil courts. There's no mention of, nor is it implied, that the judgment comes from God. What Jesus is calling for is much deeper. What Jesus is calling for is a deeper understanding of the law. How many of us who like to judge ourselves against others say, well, I haven't murdered anyone. Well, that's good. We can check that off the box. We didn't murder anyone. That's been said as we compare ourselves to other and their goodness and righteousness compared to our own. Um, That's how the scribes and the Pharisees looked at the law. If they didn't actually murder anyone, then they were safe. When we look merely at the letter of the law, that's easy to do. But what about the attitudes and the thoughts that serve as the breeding ground for murder? How many of us have become angry at a brother? How many of us have spoken hateful words in order to tear them down? As long as we simply accept the letter of the law and forget the whole spirit, content, and meaning, we can persuade ourselves that we are perfectly righteous. But Jesus knows better. Jesus knows better. And he says to us, But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, will be be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Verse 22. What matters is not not, not merely the letter of the law, but the Spirit. That will be true in all these six messages. The commandment includes not only the actual physical murder, like Cain killing his brother Abel, But also the anger in our heart against a brother. To hate. To feel bitter. To have an unpleasant, unkind feeling of resentment toward a person. Is murder. Anger in our heart toward another human being who is created in the image of God. Is as reprehensible in the sight of God as actual murder is. Matthew 15 with the direct context being Jesus talking about the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees, our Lord says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Verses 18 and 19. Notice that that evil thoughts And murder are paired together, along with the other sins. They're one and the same. They're one and the same. Anger is the very spirit that leads to murder. And when we dwell on our anger, which can be caused by all kinds of evil thoughts, we can murder one another in mind and heart and thought. We can nurse thoughts against one another that are every bit as vile. As murder is Jesus says whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and since we know that out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks Matthew 12 34 we understand that the anger bubbling within us will ultimately manifest itself in the spoken word insults hurtful words slander our words whether spoken to the one that we're angry with Or to others can be incredibly damaging to reputations, relationships, and fellowship. You know, on the playground, we learned, as kids, we learned the adage sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie straight from the pit of hell. It was then, and we knew it, even as kids. And it is now. It's a life straight from the pit of hell. The words that we say to one another, rooted in anger, are every bit as damaging as the physical pain of sticks and stones. That's why Jesus described the anger that caused those words as murder. As murder. Finally, Jesus says, and whoever says, You fool, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. N.E.S.B. uses the, word, the phrase, good for nothing, while other trans, translations use the word raka. The Greek word is moros, which is where we get our English word moron. Basically, the term means a, a worthless fellow. The anger in our heart will often erupt into a destructive attack of one's character and identity. The words that we say are a murderous assault on one who's created in the image of God. That's why James speaks about the tongue in this way, saying, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. James 8 and 9. To those who attack in this way, Jesus says they are liable, to the hell of fire. The word used for hell is Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom. Gehenna was a trash dump outside Jerusalem where fires burned constantly. It was also the location of human sacrifices of children by fire during the reigns of Ahaz and Manasseh. And Jesus uses this very well-known sight as a metaphor for ongoing physical and spiritual tormenting, torment awaiting the wicked. This would have been a shocking judgment for those hearing Jesus' words, especially for the underrated sin of anger. The antidote for anger is Reconciliation. After equating anger with murder in our opening verses, Jesus moves to the topic of reconciliation in verses 23 and 24. He says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Since we're dealing here with attitudes thoughts, and motives, it's not enough for us to just look at the negative side of the command. Do not murder. Do not be angry. Do not speak against a brother. Those are all important. Every one of them. But we must go further. We must go further. We must make it right. We must work towards reconciliation. We must take the positive steps necessary to make peace with a brother. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Romans 12, 18. Jesus cites the example of one who's offering his gift at the temple. We presume that this person comes with a contrite heart. His gift is an act of worship. It is good and right for him to offer sacrifices before God. Yet Jesus says, if you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Basically what Jesus is saying is that the priority, the priority, at least temporarily, is the relationship with your brother before your relationship with God. Notice I said the word temporally. All right, that's important. Notice I said the word temporally. Jesus is saying that the reconciliation with your brother must come first. Must come first. It has to be the priority. Once you've done that, and only after you've done that, should you bring your sacrifice of worship before God. We know qualitatively, Our worship of God, our sacrifices to Him, are of utmost importance. Our entire purpose for living is to glorify Him. Yet, if we have anger in our heart, and a brother rightly has something against us, then our priority must be reconciliation before worship. How many of us have experienced this in the past? We come to worship expecting to encounter the living God all the while holding angerness, anger and bitterness toward a brother or sister in our hearts without citing a specific example i can tell you that was my experience of worship for over a year and a half in my life over a year and a half sin breaks our fellowship with god and as Jesus just shared with us, anger is equated with the sin of murder. We must do what we can to make it right. To make it right. The book of Psalms says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Psalm sixty-six, 18. 1 John three, twenty says, for whenever, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. There is no value or purpose in your worship of God if you know in your heart that you are not right with a brother. First Samuel 15, we read these words. And Samuel said, um, speaking to Saul, Has the Lord his great delight in his burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Obey the words of Christ. Leave your gift at the altar. Go be reconciled to your brother." Honestly, if you're sitting here this morning and are convicted by Jesus' words, you should leave. You can catch the rest of the message on Facebook later. Run. Don't walk to the person that has something against you. Make it right. Make it right. Reconcile to a brother or sister, and then, and only then, come and offer your sacrifice of praise to God. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Ephesians 4, 26. You know, I know that it's a secular organization, but it's based on solid biblical principles. My dad was a historian of Alcoholics Anonymous. So Several of the guys know my dad. And he could go into tremendous detail on how and why that was so, that, that history. But often as a result of an alcoholic lifestyle, people are hurt along the way. When the, an alcoholic breaks free of that, they begin to follow the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, which again are based historically on biblical principles. When they get to the eighth and ninth step, this is the goal. Step eight. Step eight. Made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Okay, let me read that again. Made a list of all persons we had harmed and began willing to make, became willing to make amends to them all. The first step is to identify those we have harmed. Jesus says we're to do that when we remember that your brother has something against you. In his example, he's describing a time of worship. In reality, the Holy Spirit will bring these things to mind continually. If you've sinned against a brother or sister, the Holy Spirit will convict you of that sin. Don't suppress the Spirit. Heed His warnings. Be reconciled. Step 9. Made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Read that again. Made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. And this coincides with Jesus' words in verse 24. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. I said earlier that the antidote for anger is reconciliation. Be intentional. Be intentional. Proactively take the necessary steps to make amends and restore the relationship. Then and only then can we make right sacrifice to God. Verse 25 and 26, Jesus moves from the general conversation about reconciliation to to the more specific example of the civil court. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. In the example of the temple sacrifice, the man was free to go. The man was free to go. When he remembered that a brother had something against him, he could leave his gift at the altar and seek reconciliation. In this example, however, the man is under duress. He's not free to go. He's on his way to court, With one who obviously has a case against him. And given the context in which this is described, our assumption would be that there is a debt that must be paid. Jesus' counsel to this man is come to terms quickly. Come to terms quickly. There's an urgency to the matter. Settle the matter out of court, pay the debt. Come up with a payment plan. Do whatever you can to make it right before your day in court. Why? Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Verse 25. You know, when you think about it, debtor's prison is a bizarre system. I mean, it just doesn't even make sense to me. You can't pay a debt, so the judge hands you over to be thrown into prison until the debt is paid. Of course, since you're in prison, you're unable to work in order to pay the debt. So the cycle just perpetuates until the debt is somehow ultimately paid. In fact, Jesus says, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Now the word, I didn't have pennies pennies in the New Testament, Israel, um, The word that's translated in the English as a penny describes a Roman copper coin worth about one sixty-fourth of a denarius, which would be a day's wage for a laborer. The word penny is an appropriate translation for us, since Jesus' point is that the imprisonment would last until the full debt is paid. Down to the penny. So other than a very general sense, these verses shouldn't be seen as practical advice on settling legal disputes. It's there, but it isn't the main point. Okay? When we look at it in the full context of Jesus' words on murder, anger, the necessity of reconciliation, what we should get out of these final verses is the urgency of the matter. Jesus says, come to term quickly. Why? Because there's a judgment coming. There's a judgment coming. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge. The judge to the guard and you be put in prison. However, Jesus' words at the beginning of verse 26 give us a a little bit of a clue that he's speaking about more than just a civil judgment. When he says, with the, the emphasis that he often puts on this, truly I say to you. Truly I say to you, he's speaking about a divine judgment. There is a divine judgment coming for those whose earthly relationships do not conform to the values of the kingdom of God. There's a divine judgment coming for us all. But in that specific sense here in this text. Jesus makes the same point in the parable of the unforgiving servant after the servant who had been forgiven a great debt throws one of his fellow servants into prison for the debt of a hundred denarii. We read this. His master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart, Matthew 18:32-35. Do not allow bad relationships to remain unresolved. Don't let it fester. Come to terms quickly. Pay the debt you owe, whether literally or relationally. Make it right. Make it right. The words of Jesus would have been shocking to his original listener. Surely they would have been shocking to the scribes and the Pharisees who would have seen themselves as righteous. They looked at commands like, you shall not murder, figured they could check off that box. Got that one covered. But Jesus looks at more than the physical act. He looks at the motivations of the heart. And unfortunately, what He sees in many of us is anger and bitterness against those created in His image. For a child of God, that ought not be so. If the Holy Spirit convicts you Go quickly, even if it means leaving your gift at the altar. Go, be reconciled to a brother or sister. Make amends. Make it right. The antidote for anger is reconciliation. Do so with a true sense of urgency. There is an eternal judgment coming. Christ is coming. I don't know when. I better be ready. Part of being ready is having right relationships with one another. May that be so in us as we look for His coming. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is not A new ethic. These these are not words, fresh words for a New Testament people. This is what your law meant from the very beginning that it's more than just the mere acts, even one as severe as murder, but it's the attitudes of the heart, an obedience from the heart to follow you in all things, a radical obedience that goes far beyond the mere act. Father, help us to understand that. Help us as the New Testament church to go beyond checking off boxes, but to truly live for you in all things. Lord, if there are any among us that do hold anger or bitterness against someone, Father, I pray that through this message today, through your words in the Sermon on the Mount, through the conviction of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that um, it would drive them to action. Lord, to, to go and to, to seek reconciliation, knowing that that's a messy process, knowing it's not easy. That's, that wasn't the context of our message today, but we know that to be true. But Father to take the first step, to be proactive, to go quickly and make amends, so that we are right with you, and we can come and offer our worship and praise and glorify your name with a clear conscience and a clear heart. May that be so in each one of our lives, we pray. Amen. Please rise for the benediction.